Hello and welcome back to the Yeshua Judaism series of podcasts. This will be part six in our discussion of Oral Torah in which I prove both the legitimacy and the necessity of Oral Torah. Now, part five was somewhat of a summary of what we had covered through part four because this is a fairly complex discussion. And in part four, we went into an in-depth a definition of the phrase, of the term, oral Torah, and it was probably confusing to most people who, who know nothing about oral Torah. So in part five, I tried to summarize it and simplify it. And as I mentioned in part five, I was going to then, in part six, in the part you're now listening to, dive into a discussion of how to distinguish legitimate oral Torah versus illegitimate oral Torah, that is, useful oral Torah, versus oral Torah that is not useful and is actually could actually lead you astray and down a path of falsehood. Okay, so jumping right into it. Legitimate or illegitimate oral Torah. Now, the reason I did not include Takanot, Gezerot, or Minhag as part of my definition of what, what constitutes sure and legitimate oral Torah is simple, because I very definitely feel they should not be considered as such, despite the insistence from some Judaic rabbis that they are. Now, if you want to go back in part four, particularly, and you'll get an in-depth definition of those phrases, of those terms, takanot, gezerot, and minhag. Basically, takanot and gezerot are the positive and negative rabbinic decrees. Now, they're rabbinic. They're rabbinic dictates. They're not found in the written Torah. They're devised by rabbis. And minhag basically represents customs that, likewise, are not in the Bible, but they're devised by rabbis, okay? And so you can find a more in-depth discussion in part four. So I'm not going to dive into the in-depth discussions as I come across terms from this point forward. You'll just need to go back to part four and understand those definitions. And if it helps, also part five in which I summarize everything. But I'm not going to drag this out by defining the terms that I that I use every time I use them. If I do that, these podcasts will last far too long. Okay, so again, let me start again. So as I said, the reason I did not include, and I do not include, Takanot, Gizarot, or Meghag, in my definition of legitimate oral tour is because, frankly, they should not be considered legitimate. Regardless of what Akiva Judaism rabbis say, what Rabbinic Judaism rabbis say, they are not legitimate. They're added by the rabbis. They're traditions of men, as you will see that. You'll see that phrase in the New Testament. This is what it's referring to when it talks about the traditions of men. It's talking about the Takanot, the Gezerot, and the Minhag. All right? Now, Torah is viewed as, or, or excuse me, authentic oral Torah, is and should be viewed as obligatory, as necessary to understand. It's teachings that date all the way back to Moses, and they should be binding since they are truly part of the Torah. Takanot, Gezerot, and Minhag, however, 
should not be considered obligatory or binding, though they are not necessarily bad and in many cases could be useful as a person seeks a closer relationship with the eternal creator. In my opinion, the legitimacy of each mitzvot derabanan, that is, rabbinic law or decree, which of course includes the Takanot Gezrat and Minhag, should be determined on an individual basis. However, the problem is that the rabbis have decreed such an enormous number of such edicts and customs that it is impossible for most people to distinguish between what is Torah truth and what is rabbinic, legalistic, burdensome, and often elitist nonsense. The rabbis have so corrupted and expanded monstrously Torah into a, into a monstrosity of legalistic, formalistic decrees because they've done that, trying to discover the legitimate Torah among their expansive decrees is like trying to find a pure and lovely Torah needle in a rabbinic haystack. As I implied in previous parts, to avoid confusion and unnecessary text, from this point forward I will use the term takanot or derabanans as referring to the combination of takanot, gezerot, and minhag. Just remember the actual differences as stated in the previous paragraphs and previous parts, particularly part 4. As stated earlier in the previous parts, Takanot, or actually since we are here referring to prohibitions, therefore Gezerot, are sometimes called the fences of Torah, which in my opinion should still definitely not be considered Torah. Nevertheless, the concept of fences of Torah is legitimate and has very real practical value since they contain useful guidelines or practices. Now, what is meant by the fences of Torah? All right, I'll explain by way of an example. The fences of Torah. Imagine if you had a deep pit in your back backyard. Imagine further that you have small children who enjoy playing in the backyard. Well, you have two choices. Number one, you could strictly forbid your children from entering the backyard to play. Or, number two, you could build a sturdy fence around the pit to prevent your children from falling into it. If you are a parent who cares for the mental and physical health of your child, you know that exercise is needed for your child's development. Therefore, unless you are an extremely lazy parent and care not for your children's happiness, you would likely spend a day or two carefully constructing a fence around the pit to protect those you so deeply love, to prevent them from falling into it and becoming injured or perhaps even being killed by the fall. Additionally, you would probably not build the fence on the very edge of the pit, but would instead construct it a conservatively safe distance away from the pit's dangerous edge. Afterwards, your children could play in the backyard, and you could rest assured of their safety. Well, the rabbinic decrees or ordinances, that is the takanot, are exactly the same thing, but in a spiritual context. They, 
particularly the preventative decrees, that is, the Gezerot, are instituted to allow God's children to play in his created world with fences carefully placed to help ensure that his children do not fall into the many pits of sin which plague this world. The positive edicts, that is the Takanot, on the other hand, help ensure a positive, healthy, and thriving spirituality by instituting practices that enhance one's spiritual growth and nearness to God. Well, a curious or rebellious child may attempt to climb the fence in your backyard. But once they do, they, their danger increases dramatically. They could probably go right to the edge of the pit and still be safe. They could climb the fence and walk up to the edge of the pit, and they're still safe, technically. However, they're less safe. Also, accidents do happen. Therefore, it is strongly advised, often with the threat of punishment, that the child dare not climb over the fence. So you see my point. Using the the example of the fence to protect the children in the backyard, a rebellious child or a curious child may just climb over the fence. But if they do that, they're putting themselves in danger. Therefore, there are very strict, basically, warnings and threats from the parent saying, you will not climb that fence or you're going to get a spanking. In other words, the parents make sure to inform their children They are forbidden from climbing over the fence, even though simply by climbing the fence they will not fall into the pit. But by climbing the fence they will cause themselves to be in far greater danger of falling into the the pit. Well, likewise with the fences of Torah. Regardless of the supreme importance many rabbis place upon these fences, I believe they absolutely do not have the same importance as the pure Torah. Therefore, it should not be required that they be obeyed. However, due to the protection the preventative decrees provide from falling into the pits of sin and the spiritual benefits obtained from the positive decrees, it is advised, depending upon the specific fence, that those fences of Torah be honored. All right, so that's a brief discussion of what I mean when I say the fences of Torah. And you will often hear that heard within rabbinic lectures and discussions. The fences of Torah. They're referring to rabbinic decrees that may be very useful. The problem is they generally present them as absolutely necessary to be obeyed, which is totally false. Totally false. And they do that because... It gives the rabbis their authoritarian dictatorial power that they so crave and lust for. They love it when people basically make their dictates equal to the word of God, which, by the way, rabbinic Judaism very much does. As I've often said and often will say, Akiva Judaism, or rabbinic Orthodox Judaism, has literally made the rabbis God. The teachings of the rabbis, particularly their revered sages, are equal to, and in fact, even considered by many rabbis, and you will hear them say so, superior to the very words of the Almighty God. 
All right. Confusing ambiguity creates barriers, despair, and often rejection of Torah. Much ambiguity is generated by the fact that, as just mentioned in previous parts, the non-binding mitzvot drabanans are more often than not mixed in with the pure mitzvot dreta halakha Torah fundamentals, even though the drabanans should not be obligatory, in my opinion. In other words, the non-binding rabbinic decrees of the rabbis are typically mixed in with the commandments and or mitzvot from the written Torah, and they're mixed in in such a way it's difficult to find out which is which. And those rabbinic decrees should not be obligatory. Now, you'll hear rabbis say, oh, we're not... They're not obligatory. You don't have to obey them. Well, they say that, but they do not mean that. If you're in Orthodox Judaism, Rabbinic Judaism, particularly Orthodox Judaism, Orthodox, etc., if you do not obey those Rabbinic dictates, at the very least, you're considered a less devoted Jew, a bad Jew. You're ostracized. You're, you're talked about. You're considered basically a, a dirty Jew basically, a, 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 an unrighteous Jew, if you do not bow down and kiss the butts of the rabbis, if you do not have your lips permanently affixed to the butt of the, of the rabbinic sages, you're considered a bad Jew in rabbinic Judaism. Okay? It's difficult to know which halakha or legal teachings or mitzvot are considered binding and which are not considered binding. That is, it's difficult to know when you look at rabbinic Judaism's enormous mountain of decrees and, and commandments and for prohibitions, etc. It's difficult to know what is legitimate oral Torah and what is illegitimate. That is, which are the illegitimate oral Torah halakha and which are the Dorbanans? That is, the dictates purely from the sage's own opinions. This unfortunate mixture of Durabanans within oral Torah frequently encourages Torah illiterate people, such as Christians or anti-Paulists, to ridicule, scorn, or even harshly condemn all oral Torah. Because of their ignorance, they fail to realize that their disagreements are usually with the typically unnecessary Durabanans or Minhag, which are at times burdensome, elitist, or ridiculous. They wrongly define their Durbanan fences as being the oral Torah and do not realize that such is not how Yeshua and his original followers would have defined the authentic and proper oral Torah, even though they would have not, or excuse me, even though they would not have differed with all the Durbanans even. There are some Durbanans that I'm sure Yeshua and the apostles in the New Testament characters would have agreed with, but only a very small fraction, and they would never have stated that they are required. You actually see examples of this, and this isn't in the material, for instance, in some of the epistles of Paul. He gives his opinion of certain things when he's given instruction, when he's given trying to help various communities. He'll give an opinion, he'll discuss something, but it's his opinion. And you'll see at times him even expressing that this is my opinion. What does he mean by that? He means take it or leave it. 
you know, that Paul, Paul was a very, very, well, he was basically a Torah savant. That's one reason the rabbis hate him. If Paul had stayed in, in as a Pharisee and as a, like a rabbinic Jew today, he would have been basically like Akiva. He was the, the savant. He was the genius of his age. He studied under Rabbi Gamaliel I, Gamaliel the Elder, the greatest Torah scholar of, of, his, of his day, and Paul studied under him. Paul was a Torah genius. But he also knew the difference between the true oral Torah and what are the, and the Durbanans, that is the rabbinic decrees. And at times he gave what would be typically roughly equated to his own rabbinic decree. But again, he wouldn't make it obligatory. Strangely enough, Today in Christianity, they do make those obligatory. <laughs> Basically, in Christianity, if Paul said it, that's like God said it. I mean, that's Christianity's understanding. Although they misunderstand Paul completely, they still, nevertheless, if Paul said it, they that's you got to do it. And they don't realize that some of the things he said were were durabanans. They were actually his opinions. They were takanot or gazarot. They weren't literally the Torah. Anti-Torah Christians, anti-Paulist and others do not realize that oral Torah is broadly categorized and needs to be scrutinized and studied instead of instantly discarded as wholly illegitimate, as is done by those Christians and many anti-Paulists. It would be extremely useful and far less confusing if there was more of an obvious, crystal-clear distinction between the legitimate oral Torah and the, the Rabbanans within Judaic and New Testament writings. Sadly, unless the literature specifically clarifies the matter, the perception of oral Torah, legitimacy, and authority are damaged in the minds of the unlearned because of the legalistic and sometimes absurd fences of Torah, which are mistaken for legitimate oral Torah. This is clearly the case among readers of the New Testament, in which we find examples of traditions being derided or harshly attacked by Yeshua and other New Testament characters. What is really being derided and attacked? Is it the legitimate oral Torah? Or is it the non-binding, restrictive, elitist, and often burdensome rabbinic decrees, the Durabanans? Can we always really know for certain which is being referenced in those New Testament passages in which the specific doctrine being discussed is not clearly defined? Well, the honest answer is no. We cannot be certain. And anyone who tells you otherwise is being deceitful or excessively arrogant. How can we know what is unmistakably being discussed if the doctrinal details within those writings are never mentioned in the text. Often we have to guess, for instance, what the Apostle Paul is talking about. What's the, what's the, what is the problem? What is the context? Often in the New Testament, we have to guess, make an educated guess as to what his teachings, what his epistles are actually referring to. Though I would never be so bold or presumptuous to state it as an absolute fact, I nevertheless feel strongly that with a high level of confidence that in virtually all such vague cases, 
the disagreements are definitely not directed towards oral Torah in general, but instead target various non-binding takanot, that is rabbinic decrees, with which those New Testament personalities disagreed. So, how can we identify legitimate oral Torah? How can we do that? If details of the teaching or custom is revealed in the text, all one needs to do is reference Judaic sources to determine if it is actual oral Torah or non-binding Durabanans. Of course, that may entail a lot of work, which most people either do not wish to undertake or do not have the resources available to find out. If the details are not revealed, and I'm talking here about, for instance, within the writings of the New Testament, if the details, if the actual depth of the context is not revealed within those writings, which is unfortunately often the case within the New Testament, and oftentimes even within Judaic material, then it becomes much more difficult. The problem really becomes hard and difficult to overcome. It's hard to know, well, what's legitimate? What's illegitimate? However, I am of the opinion that a clue may, may exist in such, such circumstances that will assist in determining whether it is oral Torah being discussed or the Durabanans, the rabbinic decrees. Rather, oral Torah or the Durabanans is the subject of the recorded discussions in the New Testament. There, there is a clue, in my opinion, that helps us find out what is actually being talked about. That clue lies in the force of the various English terms that are used, in English translations, of course. I'm referring to the English translations of the Bible. Since Durabanans should not be binding, that is, they should be non-binding, rabbinic decrees, edicts, etc., I personally believe that less forceful terminology Words such as traditions, customs, practices, etc., that are found within the New Testament suggest the issue being referenced in that New Testament, in those New Testament passages, is quite likely a Durabanan, a rabbinic decree. On the other hand, when more forceful terms such as commandment or law or perhaps teaching or instruction and such like are used, the issue is likely referring to legitimate oral Torah, possibly halakha, that is, legal, legitimate legal elements of the Torah. I believe this because legitimate oral Torah is not customs or traditions, terms which are less forceful since they imply a lesser sacredness. Yeshua the Messiah and his original followers would have never diminished divine oral Torah by referring to it as customs and traditions. In my opinion, they knew that calling Torah a custom or tradition is irreverent and frankly wrong. Legitimate oral Torah is divine God-given instruction, commandment, or teaching. It is very sacred since it originates from the eternal creator himself. Therefore, the force of sacredness 
and the terms used within the New Testament may hold the key to help resolve the puzzle regarding whether it is legitimate oral Torah or non-binding rabbinic decrees erected as a fence around Torah that is the subject of what is written in such indefinite examples. This force of sacredness of the terminology method, however, is not perfect and will not always ensure a correct determination. Given the presence of uncertainty in the compilation of the New Testament from the thousands of often differing manuscripts and manuscript fragments that exist, and that even an even more direct and obvious presence of biased or incorrect translation, the method of deciphering just mentioned will not guarantee success. At least, however, it does possibly allow for a bit of clarity when attempting to distinguish authentic oral Torah halakha from non-obligatory drabanans while you're studying the New Testament. I realize it is not perfect, it's not a perfect procedure, but I think use of it will probably lead to more accuracy in determining the type halakha that is being discussed in those New Testament verses. I'll provide one example, a clear, classic example, of this force of sacredness of the terminology method, which I just discussed. And this is actually a one of the typical, grotesquely misunderstood passages within the New Testament. And the reason it's misunderstood is because people do not distinguish between what's legitimate Torah or oral Torah and what's illegitimate. And because of that, that is Christianity, because it will not make the distinction, it says all the Torah is abolished, which is not what the New Testament teaches. The passages from which I'll be reading is the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Colossians, and I'll be reading from Colossians chapter 2. Okay? And I'll start with verse, well, I'll start with verse 12. This is Colossians chapter 2. I'll first be reading from the King James Version because actually for this particular, for understanding the passage in question, the King James Version is probably the best version. Colossians 2 verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, he's talking about Yeshua, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now here's the verse. Here's the critical verse. Verse 14, Colossians 2.14, a verse that is universally misunderstood and grossly distorted by Christianity. Colossians 2.14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Now, notice in Colossians 2.14, he's, ta- he's talking about nailing to the cross. What's nailed to the cross? The handwriting of ordin- ordinances that was, co- that was against us. The handwriting of ordinances it also could be could say certificate of debt with its decrees. Now notice that ordinances, 
decrees, and also the term handwriting. The Torah was written by God on tables of stone. It wasn't written by a man's hand. But despite that, notice ordinances and decrees, which was contrary to us. People, he's referring to Takanot. He's referring to Durbanans. He's referring to rabbinic decrees. He's not referring to the Torah. And, the, and he even explains it. Because verse 15, what he's talking about when he says, having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them, openly triumphing over them. In Christianity, a lot of people interpret that to mean some sort of deep spiritual thing, that he has triumphed, the, uh, triumphed over dark satanic powers. That's not, sort of, that's not what it's referring to. It's referring to the rabbis he triumphed over. By nailing to the cross rabbinic decrees, and in, in, as I've said before, in rabbinic Judaism, that's one of the main reasons, one of the primary reasons they despise Yeshua. It's the very reason, the exact reason, why Rabbi Reuben, who I referred to in earlier parts, teaches, and other rabbis teach this too in, in Akiva Judaism, that Yeshua is boiling in human crap in hell. Why? Because he disrespected the rabbis. That's the reason that they give. He disrespected the rabbis. Well, here in Colossians 2, verse 14 and 15, it's stating that very fact. Yes, indeed he did. Colossians 14, again, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. Whose handwriting? The handwriting of the rabbis. That was against us, burdensome, uh, elitist, just stuff you do not need to do that that basically bars you from drawing near to God by blotting out the handwriting of ordinances of the rabbis that was against us, which was contrary to us, took it out of the way. He nailed it to the cross. When Yeshua was nailed to the cross, the, the Rabbanans, the rabbinic authoritarian power was nailed to the cross. Having spoiled principalities and powers. Who is that? That's the powers of the Pharisaic sect at that time, and the powers of the Sadducees. Basically, the priestly, the corrupt priest and the arrogant elitist, often very wealthy, Pharisees, he triumphed, he spoiled them, the principalities and powers, made a show of them openly. Well, how can, you can't spoil the, as Christianity interprets it, dark satanic forces necessarily openly, but he openly and repeatedly basically embarrassed and and engaged the Pharisees who were against him, and he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them, just as it says in verse 15, Colossians 2.15. So that's what is being referred to, people. Yeshua triumphed over the ordinances, the Takanot, the Gezerot, the Durbanans, the various customs, the decrees, he triumphed over them. He nailed them to the cross. And as I've said before, virtually every single miracle Yeshua did was a violation of a rabbinic dictate. The rabbis know this. That's why they hated him. That's why they despise him. He was making a show of them openly. He was doing it literally through his miraculous power. So you do, but his miracles were against the teachings of the rabbis, particularly many of the Shabbat crazy burdensome teachings that rabbinic Akiva Judaism has. When he would do something on the Sabbath, a miracle, it was a smack in the face against the rabbis, against their authoritarian, elitist, arrogant power. 
That's what Colossians 2.14 is referring to. It is not referring to the Torah. It's referring to the rabbinic decrees. So there, with the term ordinances or decrees, depending on, and some verses, some translations, for instance, I also have the NRSV and the NET here, it doesn't show it as well. The King James Version shows it very well. The term ordinances, the term decrees, it is very unlikely that term will be used by any by Yeshua or his followers to re, when referring to the legitimate Torah. They wouldn't use such a such a weak term. Remember the force of sacredness of terminology. The the term ordinance and decrees is not as sacred. All right. Plus again, verse fifteen, he triumphed over the principalities and powers openly. That's what it's referring to. So again, Colossians 2, verses 14 and 15 is an example of what I just discussed. It's an example of how if you scrutinize the terms used, you can determine are the verses referring to the actual legitimate Torah or or are they referring to the illegitimate rabbinic dictated laws. Takanot, Gezerot, the, the laws that make that the rabbis use to give themselves authoritarian dictatorship over the people. The crucial point to remember is that Durbanans, that is Takanot, Gezerot, Minhag, etc., should not be considered part of the divine oral Torah halakha, even if they are categorized as such within Judaism. They differ from the actual obligatory required halakhic Torah elements even though they often tend to be listed among them. That is, within rabbinic Judaism, they're listed among them. This is a fact you must understand as you consider the relevance of oral Torah. To further the confusion, however, the various Durbanans should also not be automatically rejected or condemned since there is absolutely nothing wrong with going beyond what is required to please or draw near to God. In fact, such a mindset is good and shows a person to be truly devoted to God. If people wish to observe and practice such durbanans, they should be allowed to do so unless they puff themselves up with arrogance, self-exaltedness, and self-righteousness while looking condescendingly or with contempt upon those who do not practice them. And unfortunately, that's what is done within Akiva Judaism. Therefore, the issue isn't always whether or not such rabbinic decrees are legitimate, even though at times they obviously are not legitimate, particularly those which promote elitism, snobbish, and at times uncaring exclusivity, and caustic, hair-splitting burdens. Instead, the issue is with regard to how Judaism requires people to observe them. That is, that's the issue. The issue isn't whether or not they're useful. The issue is how Akiva Judaism requires people to bow down to the rabbis and observe their dictatorial rule. That, the obligatory binding of such decrees by Akiva Judaism, was the error that Yeshua and his original followers within the New Testament sought to correct and fiercely opposed. Now let us continue with the definition of Torah. And please remember, Torah, legitimate Torah, 
does not include the mitzvot durbanans. The fences of Torah and various customs, though often useful, should not be part of legitimate Torah, regardless of what the rabbis of Akiva Judaism may say. All right. Now we'll discuss the Midrash component of Oral Torah and Pardes, P-A-R-D-E-S. The simplified two-part definition of Torah I presented earlier in part four of this podcast avoids the difficulty of figuring out what type of Agadah is being considered, which I which can be complex, a very complex undertaking, since there is no clear line which separates, for instance, Masar from the fundamentals of Kabbalah. It's not necessarily a clear distinction between those. They they basically begin to merge within one another. It becomes even more complicated when Madrash and Mishnah material is being defined. Madrash, the plural of which is Midrashim, is the body of homiletic stories told by Jewish rabbinic sages to explain passages in the Tanakh irreverently called the Old Testament within Christianity. Madrash is a method of interpreting biblical stories that goes beyond simple distillation of religious, legal, or moral teachings. It fills in the gaps left in the biblical narrative regarding events and personalities that are only hinted at. The purpose of Midrash was to resolve problems in the interpretation of difficult passages of the text of the Hebrew Bible. Basically, and to simplify, Midrash is very much like common preaching. It's very much like common preaching techniques, where examples, definitions, analogies, stories, and sometimes humor are used to explain the issue being discussed, as well as historic context. So you'll have, basically with the Madrash, you'll have historic context, cultural context, you'll have examples, you'll have parables, you'll have definitions, you'll have stories, etc. That's, that's all Madrash. Basically, it's very much like a lecture given by a preacher if you're a Christian. There is no doubt, no doubt, that Madrash is a legitimate concept since the Bible refers to two distinct Midrashim. In 2 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 22, the, quote, treatise or Midrash of the prophet Edo, end quote, is mentioned. And we find in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 27, the, quote, treatise, or midrash, of the book of Kings, end quote, is mentioned. And now I say midrash because that word treatise, if you look at the Hebrew, is literally midrash. Other English translations render the word variously, that is the word midrash, as book, or story, or inquiry. But the Hebrew word in both those verses I just referred to is midrash. Therefore, Unless you want to reject direct biblical text, you have no choice but to accept that Midrash is definitely a legitimate element of biblical teaching. Midrash, oral Torah, is definitely legitimate. The Mishnah is the first part of the Talmud, the second part being the Gemara, which is simply commentary on the Mishnah. Basically, the Talmud is composed of the Mishnah and its commentary, its Gemara. Now, a brief clarification. 
Generally speaking, Midrashic literature is far less doctrinal or legalistic than is Mishnaic literature. That is, literature that is based on Midrashim or Midrash is far less doctrinal or legalistic in most cases than is material that is based on the Mishnah, Mishnaic literature, although the Talmud actually contains a lot of Midrash to help explain its teachings. There is a history of evolution from primarily Midrashic discussions, which were the standard method of teaching before and during the first century CE, to Mishnaic literature afterwards, with the Mishnaic literature eventually winning a few centuries after the destruction of the Second Temple as a result of the ultimate publication of the Babylonian Talmud. There is also, by the way, a separate Jerusalem Talmud. And also, after the successful massive power grab by a small number of elitist Pharisaic rabbis who survived the temple destruction and the siege within Jerusalem by the Romans. Those rabbis benefited enormously from the religious vacuum that was created as virtually all other competed, excuse me, competing Jewish faith systems were eliminated by Rome. Those newly empowered rabbis totally restructured Judaism by creating rabbinic or Akiva Judaism in which they, the rabbis, alone exercise absolute and unchallenged dictatorial power. As I often say, I call it Akiva Judaism, since it is based upon the opinions of Rabbi Akiva and his students or comrades. The Rabbinic Judaism of today is not, I repeat, is not, the Judaism that existed before or during the first century CE. That is a fact, and any rabbi or any Jew who tells you otherwise is a bold-faced liar, or they're just stupid and don't know their own religion. All right, now, let me discuss the term pardes, P-A-R-D-E-S. Pardes is an acronym for the four typical methods that are used in Judaic biblical interpretation. According to this standard Pardes approach to exegesis, interpretation of biblical text in Judaism is realized through, number one, Peshat, that is the literal or plain meaning of a text. Number two, Remez, that is the deeper meaning, literally the hints that are found within the verse. Drosh, that is the comparative meaning, that is to inquire or to seek. In other words, drosh, it's a little deeper than remez. It's where you inquire and seek a little deeper meaning to the verse. And finally, number four, sod. Sod refers to the secret or mystery of a verse. It's the deepest hidden meaning or philosophy that the verse will convey. The Madrash literature, or excuse me, literary method, concentrates somewhat on Ramez, but mostly on Drash. Some people prefer to distinguish Pardes into Peshat, Ramez, Din, that is to judge or execute judgment, and Sod. However, in order to try and reduce the already complex nature of this discussion, we will ignore that understanding 
and we will refer to, when I say Pardes, I'm referring to Peshat, Remez, Drosh, and Sod. The literal meaning, the deeper meaning, or the hint within the verse, a comparative meaning, or a deep, hidden, secret, mystical meaning. Okay, now, I know it gets crazy trying to decipher and define all the various types of Torah literature. I know that. Frankly, it is a pain in the butt, just to be honest. However, the rabbis of Akiva or Orthodox Judaism love it to be so, since it forces their underlings to depend upon them to decipher and clarify the complexities of the authoritarian Akivaism or Akiva Judaism faith system. Complexities, by the way, that the rabbis themselves cause. They make things that are simple very complex. The rabbis have created complexity as part of their source of power, as a means to control. The simplest way to grasp it, that is oral Torah, is to use the simplified Torah definition that we discussed in previous parts and to understand that the New Testament would primarily be classified as historic records of events along with elements of Hashkafa and Agadah, that is, non-legal oral Torah. It also contains a bit of Halakha, that is, legal elements of the oral Torah, more, the more technical elements of oral Torah. Now, people within Akiva Judaism almost certainly would disagree, but their disagreement would have more to do with some of what the New Testament contains than it would the type of literature that it represents. To make it easier for you, I'll restate the simplified Torah definition that we covered in previous parts, okay? In simplified terms, the Torah is composed of the, the written Torah, that is the Tanakh, which is sometimes referred to as the Torah Shevektav, that is the Torah which is written, and which, of course, includes the five books of Moses. And number two, the second part of Torah is the Oral Torah, which is sometimes referred to as the unwritten Torah, the Torah Biel Paul, excuse me, the Torah Biel Pei, that is Torah which is spoken, and the Oral Torah is composed of Halakha, that is the collective body of legal teachings, some of which, if instituted by rabbinic decree, I consider to be nonsensical, elitist, and very burdensome. It represents the more technical aspects of Oral Torah, and the second component of Oral Torah is Hashkafa, what I call Hashkafa and Agadah, that is the non-legal teachings. Basically, anything that isn't halakha, anything that isn't a technical uh, legality, is, the, is Hashkafa and Agadah. It's non-legal. It is from this aspect of oral Torah, that is, from the aspect of Agadah, the non-legal teachings are what I feel much truth can be found. Much truth can be found within the non-legal teachings of rabbinic oral Torah. Not all of it's true. I would disagree with much of it, but it does contain a lot of very useful truth, especially Hashkafa. However, even when studying this type of material, when studying the, the non-legal teachings within Akiva or rabbinic Judaism, Discernment and common sense need to be applied along with sincere prayers for divine guidance. As I suggest previously, 
this Hashkafa and Agadah includes Musar, which are basically ethical teachings, and Kabbalah, which we'll get into later. And again, don't jump to conclusions and think you know what I'm referring to when I say Kabbalah. Because if you're a Christian, you do not know what I'm referring to. As suggested earlier, at the time the New Testament was being written, there was no Talmud. The Midrash was the dominant mode of teaching. The Mishnaic form of teaching did not exist because there was no Mishnah. There was no Talmud. Mishnah was the dominant mode of teaching. With, excuse me, Midrash was the dominant mode of teaching. With the Mishnah not really overtaking it, that is, the Mishnaic form of teaching did not overtake it until the later publication and dominance of the Talmud, which occurred several hundred years later. People, the Talmud itself was not finalized until the 7th century. This seemingly insignificant fact is yet another historic bit of, bit of evidence that Judaic-based counter-missionaries do not explain. They avoid. Basically, they fail to mention that the common Talmudic supremacy of today and even of Rabbinic Judaism itself is a post-Second Temple occurrence and that Judaism at the time of Yeshua was far broader, consisting of numerous different denominations or sects of Judaism. The Pharisees, most of whom did not accept Yeshua, as did the Apostle Paul, and from whom Rabbinic Judaism ultimately originated, were but one of many different denominations or sects within first century Judaism. And even among the Pharisees, there were variations. Most of the other Judaic sects eventually perished. Among those were the original followers of Yeshua, known in some literature as the Messianist or Messiahist, and today you'll often hear them referred to as the, the Nazarene. You would find them, for instance, mentioned within Rodkinson's abridged version of the Talmud in the section in which he discusses the history of the Talmud. In Greek, their identity would have, have the equivalent term of Christians. There were generally, they, or that is, the, the Messiahist or Messianist, the, the original followers of Yeshua, who were found within the Rodkinson's abridged version of the Talmud, were generally composed of Pharisees who were adoptionists, did not accept Yeshua's deity, and revered all of the Torah, including oral Torah. The reason their opinions and those of others with whom the specific Mishnah compilers disagreed were not included in the Talmud is because those who compiled it rejected Yeshua as Messiah, most notably the ridiculously wealthy Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi or that is Rabbi Judah the Prince, the very wealthy compiler of the Mishnah and a personal friend of Emperor Marcus Aurelius Antoninus. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi purposely chose to censor, to discard any oral Torah elements in his, in his effort to compile the oral Torah, which we discussed earlier. He purposely discarded and censored anything that disagreed with the Akiva Judaism opinion and mindset. In other words, the opinions of the Messiahist, the followers of Yeshua, were intentionally ignored, censored, and thus made to appear as though they never existed by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. 
The belief of those biased Mishnah and Talmud compilers was that the best way to defeat the Messiahist, the best way to defeat the opinions of the followers of Yeshua, was to ignore them and to watch them dissolve away in the course of time. Sadly, they almost totally did. They largely did. But what replaced them, the severe anti-Torah and anti-Semitic teachings birthed by 4th century Christianity in Rome, proved far worse for the anti-Messiah, the anti-Yeshua Talmud compilers and their followers. Here we have an amazing irony, as well as a sign of the awesome power and wisdom of God. Both traditional Christianity, traditional pagan Roman-based Christianity, and Akiva Judaism strove to expel and censor all remnants of opinion and teaching from the original Torah-centric pro-Torah followers of Yeshua. In the case of Christianity, they wanted to rid the world of all vestiges of Torah, and they continued that effort to this very day. Yet in the case of Judaism, Akiva Judaism, Pharisaic Rabbinic Judaism, they wanted to rid the world of all traces of Yeshua and Yeshua Judaism, and of Yeshua's Messiahship, and of the openness of Torah and God's kingdom offered to all nations or Gentiles through the teachings of the original Messianic Torah teachers who were among Yeshua's original followers. That effort also continues to this very day. That effort from Rabbinic and Akiva Judaism is ongoing. They both appeared, that is, both pagan Roman Christianity and Akiva Judaism both appear to have succeeded. But, praise be to God, they did not succeed. Today we are living in the time of a rebirth of those original Messianic truths. Blessed be the Most High, we are living in, quite literally, the time of a miraculous rejuvenation of truth that lay dormant for centuries, awaiting the time when God would divinely decree its resurrection from the ash heap of history. That time has come, and it would not be stopped. God's truths cannot be erased, cannot be overcome, cannot be replaced. Here in these final days, he is providing a latter reign of truth before the time when the great and awesome day of the Lord arrives, which will happen very soon, my friends. Prepare yourselves. Within the next few years, my personal opinion, within the next seven to ten years, maximum. You are living in an incredible and unprecedented time, but it is also a time of final reckoning and choice. God is showing himself to be victorious over those who struggle to suppress and destroy his eternal teachings, both within Christianity and within Akiva, Rabbinic Judaism. They both want to suppress and destroy the true Torah of God. Any of the original Torah-centric <coughs> messianists who survived Christianity's efforts to eradicate Torah were certainly killed, forced into hiding, or simply pushed aside by the later church as part of its evil effort to rid Christianity of any pro-Torah opinions. I am of the belief that specifically within the epistles of Paul, 
if they are properly interpreted, which sadly Christianity does not do, we can see elements of that original Messianist belief system, a pro-Torah system. That is the original Yeshua Judaism, the original teachings of the followers of Yeshua, a pro-Torah system which stands in stark contrast to the anti-Torah, the pagan anti-Torah foundations of Christianity that evolved later and that remain to this day. So, concluding this particular part six of our discussion, we ask, what really is oral Torah? It is really simpler than you think. Oral Torah, and this is very important, ultimately, the term oral Torah simply means verbal teachings. Remember, Torah is simply a word. People get wrapped around the axle about the word Torah. Ultimately, Torah is simply a Hebrew word. That's all it is. It's just a word in Hebrew. And that word means teachings or instructions. That's all it is. So when you hear the word Torah, don't think it's some Jewish thing. That's just a Hebrew word. It means teachings. It means instructions. It's not Jewish. It's universal. So oral Torah simply means verbal teachings, teachings that were transferred verbally, and they're not specifically found within the Bible. That's all it is. That's all oral Torah actually is. It's simply verbal teachings. Oral Torah represents teachings, lessons, sermons, parables, examples, analogies, and any other form of instruction or methods used as tools to help explain the intended meaning of the Holy Scriptures. That's all it is. So, this concludes part one in the written material and part six in these podcasts of our discussion of oral Torah, in which its necessity and legitimacy are proven. Please continue to part two in the written material or part seven in, this, in the podcast audio series for further and more expansive discussion regarding oral Torah and Christianity's horrific, terrible, gross error in rejecting it. Thank you for listening, and please continue again to Part 7 of our discussion of Oral Torah. Thank you again.